Hi folks, this is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check two. Check two. Check one. Just did it backwards for some reason. It's okay. You ready to do this? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah? Yeah, I'm ready to do this. Awesome. Before we do this. What? I think we've been doing this long enough that we need to develop some sort of official rite of passage into nerddom. Okay. What? I've got an idea. Just to, to go with me here. Go with me here. First off, you, you start out by going to a comic book store. And you, okay. you buy a comic book. Okay. Then you go to a movie. Okay. All right. Uh, and then after that, you return to the home of your mother where you create a, uh, a den of sorts in her basement, a, a, a place in which you could retreat to if needed. And this establishes manhood or? Your rightful place in the nerd world. Okay, I could go with that. Yeah, sure. you, I, I need someone, of course, to test it out. You want to you wanna be my, my sure. guinea pig? Sure, sure. I think it could be a fun day. Sure, it could be really, really fun, yeah. 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 All right, great. Okay, we'll do it then. We'll yeah, do it. Of course, <laughs> well, there's the first part, but um, I, I forgot to mention that. Kind of <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Let's back up a second. F- first part? Yeah. No, it's, it's not that bad. I mean, really, it just involves you stripping down nude uh, and then going out into the forest uh, to which you are put up against a bear. And this bear has been deprived of all food for about seven days and has been given nothing to drink but tang. Oh, and the, and the bear's diabetic. So he's a bit agitated. Yeah, you have to kill the bear, of course. Um, but then you get to go, you know, it'll be fun. Yeah. What movie is this? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Bricklont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Sir, you most certainly are. And I have to say, it's good to see you. It's good to see you as well. We haven't done this in a while, actually. You guys haven't felt that way, have you? Because you've been listening to our very cleverly planned sci-fi episodes. But we actually have been on break for three and a half weeks. It's been that long? It's been crazy, yeah. That's insane. It feels like just the other day we were here in the Nerd Cave. But um, no, yeah, it's been a little while. And... Uh, we all had fun. I mean, we love being together. We love doing this. We love recording. Sure. But we've been doing it going strong for months now. And we needed a little bit of a break. And we took it. I had a blast. This was my, my birthday uh, week uh, that occurred in one of those three weeks. And so uh, Martha and I, uh, without the kids, just the two of us, went to our, our family cabin that we have up north. And we spent some time there, uh, about four days. And we had a great time. Yeah. 4,000 feet elevation, the, the cabin is in a redwood grove, uh, and there's pine trees and all sorts of good stuff all around there. And then the Calaveras Big Trees is like two miles down the road. There's this pristine lake a mile down the road, and it's just it's it's just phenomenal. I brought my telescope, and we just we had a blast. We That's really great. Did. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, I wish I could say we did. I did. Uh, something. I didn't do much of anything, which is probably a good break, though, because I didn't really formally have a weekend for about, you know, five months. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm oh, glad yeah. that I didn't really do anything. 
Um, but I did say that we did have a fun little gathering a week ago. We went and saw the midnight showing of Man of Steel. Ah, yes, we did. Which was very, and of course it was your birthday, and we got the audience to sing happy birthday right before that the show started. was the coolest part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so perfect. Sure. Because you guys just started singing, and then by the time you got to the second happy birthday... Everybody in the whole theater was was singing happy yeah, birthday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. And for those who don't listen to our Nerds on Film podcast but are interested in that experience, uh, Mobro Soup's show part two has uh, our second segment of Nerds on the Street where we talked about that. And uh, we should need to do that again. I think Lone Ranger might be the next one we have to do. I have some reservations about that movie. Uh, well, you had some reservations about Superman as well, but I did. Some of them were rightful. Yeah, but, uh, you know... That's a whole other episode, though. A few of us had some reservations about Star Trek Into Darkness, too. And so. in many cases, part of that was rightful, too. Yeah, yeah. so maybe it's okay that it's we okay. have reservations. It's okay to have reservations, especially if you want to go to dinner. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, I channeled my dad for a moment there. Um, what else happened? Well, we've got some other good news. We had a couple donations that took place. Some rather... Some sizable ones. Sizable donations. Um, uh, first of all, Jennifer... Our loyal listener, who is also a former history teacher, sent us a very simple, modest donation of 20 bucks, but it was very much appreciated. Very much appreciated. Very, very much. Susan Jennifer, thank you very much. You got your shout out. Yes, thank you. Uh, we love you, as always, and big contribution, big help. And, of course, Aunt Teresa. Aunt Teresa. Oh, you, you already are, know that I love you. You. This is tough, because between her and Kyla, like, first number one fan, you know, is it's really it's tough at this point. I mean, I think it's going to have to come to fisticuffs. Kyla, I don't want you to go and put yourself in the financial straits, but Teresa sent us a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, give us two hundred. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, thank you, and Teresa, so so much because of all of your donations. Guess what? You will no longer have to hear us complain about the heat. We are getting that air conditioner. Uh, it'll be here soon. And uh, and we will no longer uh, be hot. Yeah, and we have our new computer too. We just we're now paying it off though. That's yes, just the making installments and payments on that. And that uh, again, please keep those donations flowing. Keep them coming on in. Uh, for everyone who's donated, thank you so very much. And for everyone who's just listening, just listening, thank you. We really appreciate it. We Absolutely. Really yeah, we're trying to expand ourselves to the widest audience possible. Yeah, you know, if you can't make a donation right now, because I get it. I've got two kids. I've got, you know... Sure, we all have oh, budgets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the podcast is free. I, we understand why people are downloading yeah. free entertainment. Exactly. If you can't, and we totally understand that you can't, do us a favor by maybe sharing our page on your Facebook page or uh, recommending us to a friend or doing something that kind of gets us uh, a little bit of exposure and gets us out there. So uh, if you can, we would appreciate that as well. Speaking of which, let's take a second to talk about a few people who have given us some really great feedback. That's right. We haven't done a whole lot of listener feedback in those recent episodes because we haven't really been... We, we also haven't had that early. much yeah. either. I mean, it's been actually kind of a slow <laughs> week for the mail coming in because we've... It's kind of weird how that happens, like when we go on yeah, break. Yeah, we went on vacation. We went on break, and we didn't really even announce that we were going on a break that we did. But yeah. it was so funny. The, the moment we decide to, to then come back and record, that's when we start getting the listener right. feedback. Right, yeah. The, the podcast kind of went on, on autopilot for a little bit. It's uh, some sort of psychic melding, uh, a mind meld, if you will, uh, that we have with our listeners uh, that I think is unique to Nerdonomy. We have this special connection. Uh, like our connection with Stevie. Uh, Stevie gave us a really fantastic uh, shout-out on our Facebook page, uh, communicated to us. He lives in 
Portsmouth, England, uh, home to the HMS Victory and the Mary Rose that he wanted to shout out. And despite the fact that I'm terrified of boats, uh, that impresses me. That very much impresses me. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, important ships and naval battles at a, at a future episode for sure. Um, but he is uh, a big fan of museums, just as I am. He spent quite a bit of time working them, just as I did. Uh, however, unlike me, he is quite musically talented, and he is a full-time musician. So huzzah to you for that. Uh, loves hearing the podcast, finds them entertaining and informative, and uh, wants us to keep up the good work. So, Stevie, you got it. We're going to keep up the good work. Thanks for the shout-out. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Stevie. We also got another one just today, actually, on Nerds on History in relation to our post about uh, the Platypus of Languages, the one that you guys and you and Sarah did while I was finishing that old piece of paper uh, that we call the Diploma for a College Degree. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a simpler name than that, probably. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> I just decided to make it longer for no reason. Melissa. Melissa, thank you so much. Loved this. I am a horrible speller, but I enjoy the spoken word. Really good episode. Well, really good person you are. For- yeah, and don't worry about it, because I am probably the worst speller in history. Oh, he's terrible. No oh, offense, dude. I, I have cre- no, no offense taken. I have created words just trying <laughs> to spell something simple like bird that doesn't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> and the funniest thing is I have the hardest time with simple words in English. Ancient Egyptian, fine. Weird. Not a problem. Huh. Yeah, it's bizarre. There's Anyhow. probably some reason for that, but we just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> I yep. think it has something to do with my with my uh, seancing of time that I sometimes do. My seancing that I do. Yeah, Sure. Yeah. And you got another one, it looks like. Who's that from? Oh, right. Exactly. This is from Leave, uh, who has the most awesome name that I think Brian might recognize uh, based on our most recent uh, episode, our, our science fiction episode. He, he gave us this great screen name. Darth's Streptococcus. I believe that he uh, he borrowed that from our most recent episode. Oh, I think I was saying I was saying Streptococcus, but uh, but that's close enough. Streptococcus sounds like he just has been going and punching people in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> Which a, we here at Nerd Army, Dark Lord of the Sith, we discourage that behavior. Please do not punch anyone anywhere in those areas. Is balls okay for for a non explicit podcast? I think it's okay. I think it's all right. Yeah, it's it's, it's metaphorical. Yeah, if somebody's offended, they'll tell us. Balls. Balls. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can we say bollocks then? Anyway, go ahead. Well, bollocks just doesn't mean anything. And according to the British people I've spoken to, bollocks is just kind of like a throwaway word for like nonsense. But it's also used as a metaphor, a euphemism for certain body parts. But it yeah. doesn't tie to any specific body part, as far as I understand. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So you could be punched in the bollocks and be punched in the nose, for example. Oh, well, that's bollocks. Anyway, um,. <laughs> <laughs> He would like to uh, just give us a, a, a bit of a shout out and let us know that uh, you know he recently went on a trip to uh, Philadelphia and had an opportunity to go to the uh, to the Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Had a wonderful time and was uh, essentially being remembered of all the, the great fun that he has when he listens to nerds on history as he was walking around and thinking, uh, you know, oh, Eric would probably like this artifact. Uh, and I wonder if Eric Brickmont has been here. And just the very fact that I have ever popped into anyone's head in association with someone where they visited, that warms me heart and soul. So thank you very much. Uh, I think that's fantastic. He would like to know if we're going to be at the San Diego Comic-Con because of our uh, proximity to it in California. However, um, yeah, we're not going to be able to make that one this year, sadly. Yeah, well, sir, it sounds like you may not be familiar with the landscape of California because San Jose is actually nine hours away from San Diego. San Diego is actually very close to the Mexican border. 
we would love to go to San Diego Comic-Con. That would be an amazing experience, especially if we were to get a table at that that con. Yeah, we're going to need a few more donations before that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Comic-Con is very expensive to go to, um, and it sells out within minutes uh, of it usually going online. And plus, hotel rooms are super pricey. Like, they shoot up to be like four times what they usually are. Yep. But one day, I believe Nerdonomy will grow to that point and we'll be able to go down there, perhaps even as honored guests. Who knows? Maybe we'll even have a panel. That would be pretty awesome. That would be amazing. Contact your local congressman and tell them to uh, donate uh, national resources to Nerdonomy so that we can get to that contact. Do yourself a favor. Contact both Kevin Smith and Joss Whedon. There you go. And just inundate their Twitter accounts saying, you listen to Nerdonomy, listen to Nerdonomy. And then. That'll Maybe we'll have a chance. And Chris Hardwick, too. Throw him in there. Chris too. Hardwick. Yeah, sure. Of course. Our competitor, Mr. Nerdist. I don't see him as a competitor. I no? think we complement each do. other very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have a nemesis. So, if anything, to make a nemesis out of a guy who's actually a celebrity, maybe not be a, a good Probably idea. Probably not a good idea. No. I, I retract Brian's statement for him. Oh, we're just being silly right now. We are being silly. We're being very silly. We haven't been at the mic for like three weeks. <laughs> I know. So... Um, oh, Mike. We gotta talk about Mike. Mike makes a very good point. Uh, he did give us a comment about submarines, correct? Yes, about submersibles. And I, this is totally my fault because I brought this up and I and I meant to correct myself. And I was even thinking in my head the submersibles that we're talking about, the in reference to the turtle, the the very first kind of what you would consider to be a submersible. That was definitely revolutionary war and he calls me out on it and it was so funny because i was thinking about that in my brain that i was going to correct myself and i i never ended up doing it because the hunley which was used in the civil war was a full submer- fully yes. submerged yes it was um and then you know it, it just escaped my mind so i forgot to mention that and i correct myself right yeah now. and in the context of our episode we were still talking about the fact that the nautilus was a deep sea submarine right was still science fiction at that point in time. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, the Hunley would have been under... I mean, I'm just assuming... you would. Michael probably know better than I would. I'm assuming it'd be underwater maybe 50 to 100 meters at the most. I really don't know. I mean, I think Mike's father would probably be the person to ask. Uh, he was a, a Navy submariner for 28 years. Right. So, I mean, obviously Mike grew up around them. He has probably a far more intimate knowledge than any of us would be combined. But uh, not probably, certainly. But um, uh, Mike, let us know. Maybe you can do a little research for us and find out uh, just how far down did those uh, submarines in the Civil War actually right. go. I would be really interested in knowing. Absolutely, yeah. I would like to know that as well. Cool. Well, hey, listeners, thank you so much again for uh, all of your feedback. We love it. We want to hear more of it. Don't give us dry spells. We don't like dry spells. It makes us think that you don't love us anymore. Eric has abandonment issues. I need attention. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I feel like we've stretched enough. I feel like I'm back in the in the mode now. Let's get to this. Cool. Let's get to this episode. We're in a, a season right now that is full of tradition, right? We know we, we're it's June. It's, we call it dads and grads. Yep. Uh, and when we think about graduation, we think of it as a as a rite of passage for our current generation, right? You know, whether it's high school graduation, college graduation, more like college nowadays than it is high school. But this feeling of transitioning fully into this adulthood, and I find it interesting because. Historically, our global culture has always had some sort of ritual that signifies transitioning to adulthood. The rite of passage. Exactly. So we thought it'd be interesting to go through, not necessarily go through the entire world, because that would take too long, but to do highlights 
of cultures around the world that have their own rite of passage ritual in some way. And there are so many. I mean, you said it right. We couldn't possibly do everything. And at that point, we would just be listing stuff off and it wouldn't be all that interesting. But, right. Uh, it, it's really amazing because there are so many different takes on what is essentially all the same exact thing. It is removing an individual from society for a short time, allowing them to have an experience or, or, or do something that transforms them, transitions them in some way into adulthood, and then bringing them and reintroducing them back into that community that they that they came from. And in many cases, it's very quick. It can take place in just a matter of hours. In some cases, it's much more involved, like you know the Native American vision quest, and can take several days to be accomplished. It's something that is universal. It's not exactly cross-cultural parallel development, right? We talk about that to death. But it is something that we all definitely have in common. But we've all taken very unique, very different paths when we when we execute them. And I want to talk about stuff today that is a little bit mainstream, because we have to, because we have to keep it relevant to what we know and give us some relation to that. But I also want to talk about some pretty neat stuff that goes on well beyond our uh, our normal areas of, of influence, at least here in you know the United States and, and most of our the English listening world. Okay, fair enough. So where should we begin? Well, I think that we really started well with the graduations. I think we should talk about that because it is a very modern coming-of-age ceremony. Uh, and I think that no one does it more unique than perhaps the Norwegians. You really? Yes. And I know we have some Norwegian listeners. We've gotten some feedback from that area of the world. And I would like very much for our Norwegian listeners who have participated in this, if they have, to give us some feedback. Uh, because I am absolutely fascinated by the traditional tradition of Rus. And I'm probably saying it wrong, because I say everything wrong, but I don't care, because it's well-intentioned. But uh, Rus, or the the actual celebration of it, um, Rus Erfring, probably so- saying it wrong. Sounds a lot, almost like Rumspringer, but uh, I'm sure I'm, that's just a, a drastic connection I'm, I may be drawing from it. Probably. I, I know I'm saying it wrong. I apologize to everybody out there, but it essentially means Rus celebration. So I'm just going to say Rus from this point on. It is a tradition that began uh, for Norwegian high school students just about 100 years ago. It's just a little over 100 years old in its uh, foundation. Sure. And it was uh, partially inspired by the the dress and the actual ceremonial gown that they would wear, uh, which was inspired by the Germans. There was a group of visiting German students who had these uh, very distinctive caps that they wore. And it was kind of influential, and this was back in 1904, and by 1906, it now becomes standard sure. uh, adornment for those who are graduating. Right. And they started wearing these very very distinctive caps, and they had different colors. Originally, it was red, but then they had different colors for different, you know, whatever your your, your degree that you were moving into, right? Whatever you were going to go into, whether it was be mathematics or what have you. Right. Because in, in high school, it was very different in much of Europe. They actually cover a lot of what they would do in uh, college preparatory classes here uh, in America, but they do so by pretty much default. Yeah. Um, that's just incorporated into the curriculum. And in a period from April 26th to May 17th, leading up to their graduation, so these are the graduating students only, uh, they partake on a three-week period of debauchery. <laughs> it's really just like the, the way I have to kind of sum it up. It's pretty incredible. Because the legal age for drinking and the legal age for driving in Norway are both 18, which just happens to correspond with the time that you would be graduating from high school. And 
it's kind of like this pass to go out and get it out of your system. Go crazy. And a lot of students take the pass and, and run with it. You go out and you drink and you party and you have a lot of fun and you hang out with your friends. And by fun, you mean sexual relations. I mean sexual relations, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you you just you go wild. And it kind of blows my mind, but it's so well organized. You would think something like that would just be total chaos, but it has... Out of Norway, of all the countries. Out of Norway. <laughs> and you think America would like yeah. make that this total thing, but I guess we're just a little too puritanical. We, we have Mardi Gras, and that's it. We have Mardi Gras and Spring Break. These guys go for three weeks strong. And it's not uncommon for partiers to create the Roosboos. <laughs> this is the car, basically? Yes. They, they buy used vans and buses... They paint them with the colors of their of their graduating classes, and they create party buses. And they actually kind of get together and form these little party bus communes, and they all kind of hang out and just go go crazy. Uh, <laughs> I thought, wow, only in a small country could you actually really do something like that. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting the side effects that it's had because drunk driving is, of course, highly highly discouraged. And they have made a lot of efforts lately to try to separate those two functions as much as, as humanly possible. Sure. And they've have made it, a have lot a of progress. Have a designated driver, of course. Yeah. And they've made a lot of progress with that through education and making sure that people are being responsible. Good. Uh, one thing they were having a lot of problem with is the contraction of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and uh, herpes. Mm. Uh, that, that, that's the real big one because chlamydia and gonorrhea can be treated and cured. Right. Herpes, herpes cannot. cannot. Herpes is with you for life. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, I know. Sorry. Anyhow. <laughs> but let's, it, let's not make that the episode title. No, that's not going to be the episode <laughs> title. Please, no. That would be awful. Although, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the Red Cross, to that point, after one very particularly bad May in Norway, started handing out condoms by the thousands yeah. in Norway. And you, what's fascinating is that when you form these little auto boost or not auto boost excuse me uh roost roost boost boost. kind yeah. of uh, communes right when you get together and you create this ruse they have different uh offices that people are elected into sure they have a president they have the party organizer who's probably the most important person in that group they have a person who actually comes together uh, as like a journalist slash newspaper editor and they get together to create this kind of newspaper at the end that they have which is kind of cool yeah uh chronicling all the awesomeness that they do and then they have the sexual contraceptive uh, coordinator who is in charge of making sure that people are uh, giving condoms. I'm wow. serious. I'm not making that up. I, I'm just curious what the logistics of this role are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> do you have to call Trojan and like ask? You no. Know, no, the Red Cross just gives them to you. There's Red Cross. Okay, well, all right, fair enough. You just email the Red Cross, I guess, and get a box full of condoms. I don't know. The variety pack, more than likely. <laughs> <laughs> Colors of the rainbow. <laughs> Anyhow, we are not by any way condoning excessive amounts of alcohol, drunk driving by any means, unprotected sex, or any of the other things that we've talked about that sometimes are associated with this. Uh, however, I do have to it just, it, it is a really just... It's a fascinating it's concept fascinating. That, we, that they socially accept this short-term period of just yeah. going nuts. And I don't want people to think that what I'm saying is that every single youth in Norway 
goes out and does Of course it. not. It's no. not at all universal. There are many people who abstain from this behavior for religious reasons, for moral reasons, because they just don't like the crowd right. and they don't want to be part but of that. But it's a cultural practice that has come to be accepted. Yes, it is an accepted cultural yeah. practice, even though not everybody participates. And uh, to those of you who don't participate, you're probably actually right. doing yourself a favor. Well, Norway is, Norway is a predominantly Protestant country. Their church, their formal church is Lutheran. So um, I do that because I was, I learned from that because I was looking at what we'll get to as a little later, uh, right of passage situation. Yeah, shocking. Yeah, shocking. Brian knows something about Christianity. Go figure. Knows something about that, yeah. Uh, uh, so it doesn't surprise me that there would be a, kind of a little bit of a, of a clash between, not that there is a clash formally, but that there would be a distinction between people who would choose not to live that and people who would. Yeah, I respect those folks who actually are able to say, hey, everyone else is doing it, but I choose not to. I, I respect that. I really do. Honestly, I probably would be one of those people if I was given that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, when I was 18, I wasn't drinking or anything like that. I don't know. I would maybe hang out and party a little bit, but I don't think I would drink. Well, given my Catholic background, I probably would, but then like immediately go straight to confession afterwards. Oh, you'd feel horrible. Because the shame would just eat me yeah. alive. Yeah. On on May 18th, you would you would just you'd be in there saying Hail Marys until. Uh, memorial i'd be saying hail mary's till december yeah <laughs> more than likely <laughs> but what a really interesting way of doing it because you know here in america when you graduate from high school you there's definitely a party of some sort right there's there's some sort of phase that you kind of go to and that's just called college uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true uh, yeah you think about it they do it for three weeks in america we usually do it for about between four to eight years depending on yeah. what your major now is. let's talk about this for a second and bringing it back to just high school graduations which is, a guy say, well done, sir. I can't top that at all. Oh, thank you. Thank but you just give, to give people some perspective, the high school graduation in and of itself is a relatively new concept when we come yeah. think of it in the perspective of history. Absolutely. Because secondary schools are only a couple of hundred years old at best. Graduation from that wasn't even really considered a big deal, I would say, until probably about 100 years ago. Yeah. Just And that's, and that's an, an estimation. So if you have an exact date, let me know. Um, the a lot of the tradition, the pomp and circumstance, pun intended, of that comes from college graduations. The regalia that you wear, the robes that we talked about this, I think, in the the, the education episode we did. We did. We talked about it a little bit. Yeah, um, all derived from from the the classical college education that was started in the Middle Ages. So we're really just seeing kind of now a level in between your normal basic education and the fine tuning education that you're used to getting. When you go to college, I mean, bachelor's degrees aren't that old either. They're about a hundred years old uh, in of themselves too. Yeah. Um, before that, like we talked about in an earlier episode, it was masters and then PhD, and that was it. Um, and you studied as long as you could. You did your for education was informal up until you got your master's degree. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. I mean, education itself in the in the modern institute is very much a new thing, yeah. and it's interesting the need that people have to create. Uh, traditions around it yeah. and rites and, and ceremonies. But it's also very telling of the, the change of the culture, too, because you notice these things start to happen when there becomes a stronger middle class. Yeah. You know, education for college was pretty much people who were going to be law lawyers, doctors, a philosopher of some kind, some very highly specialized field that tended to be, unfortunately, reserved for the higher class individuals in society. So if you get people who have a stronger middle class, they're going to want their own tradition without necessarily going through the a higher level, right? So you have their own rite of passage, their own graduation, where this is good enough for that class. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't think about that, you know, we live in a country that, in our area, we're kind of uh, through a prism, because in the Bay Area, 
you know, the, the graduation rate is pretty high. It's like in the 90s. And to get a competitive job, you need to have not only a bachelor's degree, but you also need to have some crazy internship experience, some high skills you've been doing on your own, um, arguably a master's in some cases. You know, the kids who are getting jobs at Apple and Google are the kids who've been coding and wrote their first app at age 15. Like, yeah. that's it's like this area is just like super, super competitive for that kind of field. There are other parts of the country where the highest level of education someone gets is high school, is a high school diploma. Where it's common, yeah. Where it's more common to have a high school diploma. Yeah. And nationally speaking, that's still the standard for a lot of entry-level jobs. Yeah. you got to have a high school diploma. In some areas, it's still, like in, like I said, the Bay Area, bachelor's degree is almost the price of admission. But it's not the case everywhere. Yeah. And I just find that interesting because America is, even though with the economic problems we've been happening, we're still a pretty heavily middle-class country, though Absolutely. the middle-class is shrinking we still have a middle-class society that dominates a lot of our thinking, I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what really struck me in the research that I was doing on this, a lot of the rituals that we find that are associated with coming of age, at least in the modern day, are very much focused on moving on and moving forward with your life, becoming an adult, making that transition with your education. But at the core of it, a lot of it is associated with the basics. And by basics, I mean basic human functions like reproduction. And <laughs> A lot of them are based on reproduction. Absolutely. And when it comes down to it, many cultures around the world, that is that defining moment as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's not so much, okay, I've completed my education and now I'm ready to move forward with my life and, and go out there and, and rule the world. It's more, okay, I've gone through puberty now. Puberty now defines me as an adult I'm ready to start a family, reproduce, and continue my my culture, my society, my species. Uh, and there's so many rites of passage that are associated with that. And some that you wouldn't even necessarily assume that's really what the core of them is. And to speak about this, I'd actually like to invite onto the show, if only for about five minutes, because that's probably the only amount of time I'll actually be able to get her in front of a mic, uh, my beloved wife, Martha, oh, wow, yeah. who is going to talk to us about what we all think is the quinceanera, but the actual, well, I'll let her say the rest. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Hi, babe. Hey, Martha. How you doing? Hi, Brian and Eric. And I'm doing pretty good. Nervous, but good. Don't be nervous. It's okay. You will be fine. You will I, definitely be I am fine. so delighted right now that you are on the show. I talk about you. You know, you listen to the show all the time. I talk about you and the girls constantly. Uh, I'll have to have the girls on the show eventually, but I finally... (laughs) That'll be fun. They'll have a blast. I finally got you on the show. And the reason why is because the Kinsiara, at least in this part of America, is such an important tradition. People know about it all the time. Back when I used to work at the museum, everybody would come to our grounds and take pictures all over the place, wearing these gigantic electric pink <laughs> fluffy dresses uh, and with tons and tons of people all accompanying them. And they would just take pictures for hours and hours. Under, under the, the skirt of the dress? or Because, I mean, that's how big <laughs> these skirts are. Is you could fit about 20 people under them. You could, yeah, exactly. They're, they're pretty incredible. Um, but I wanted you to come on the show, and I wanted you to talk about it, because uh, for those of you who, of our listeners who do not know, my wife is originally from Mexico. You were born in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yes, good. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's a very, very big part of the Mexican uh, culture and tradition. And I just wanted you to speak a little bit about why is it, why is it so important? Um, It's like everybody knows it's a rite of passage, but it's more like, um, you could say a debutante dance. 
Okay. Like from the fr- uh, French culture, like presenting your daughter to society. Um, okay. You could say in an- ancient time, not like long time ago. Sometimes it could be seen like presenting your daughter as to society for like a suitor. Like, right. Like look at my daughter. And look at us, we're a family that is able to provide for her, we're of good position, and all of that. And um, that was a long time um, before, but right now it's more just presenting your daughter to society, having this family connection with your closest friends, and everybody. Yeah, it's interesting that you say French, because you know, when you think of Mexico, we think of the heavily Spanish influence on uh, the country, but that wasn't the only European colony that had influence on the country no. at all. <laughs> yeah, Mexico, uh, there's a big French um, culture, you could say. You could uh, see it in any time, like from 15 años, sometimes some, some tradition that we do for El Día de los Muertos or in the funeral is a lot of the tradition are very European. So European culture is all around us over there. Yeah, not just not just from Spain. No. Now it's interesting. You did not call it the quinceañera. No, quince uh, the quinceañera. How you usually hear it in the U.S. is about it's calling like the girl in Mexico. It's quinceaños. The party is called quinceaños. But the girl is the quinceañera, and the girl is the quinceañera. But I gotcha. here is commonly mistaken. Yeah, interesting. And I think that even in Many Mexican families, or not necessarily Mexican families, but Latin American families, when they send out invitations, they're sending it out, though, for the, the quinceañera. I don't want to, like, talk down to certain parts of Me- about certain pa- parts of Mexico, but, like, certain states like Michoacán, Oaxaca, outside of Mexico City, a lot of people call it oh, a quinceañera, but they're usually people from small, like, towns, Rancheria, ranchos, that we call them over there. So it's more of a rural term, yes. whereas in the city it's a little bit more of like a formal term. Yes. Okay, kind of like what we would call maybe like a, a ball in a more, you know, rural term as opposed to a, you know, a debutante. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. The debutante dance, I did a little bit of research on it, is also present in other Latin American cultures other than Mexico. Yeah. Too. The quinceaños is by no means exclusive to Mexico. No, it's in whole Latin America, but it changes from country to country, the traditions and meaning of it. In Mexico, there's also a lot of religious brought into, religion brought into it. The whole pre-party mass, placing the, the girl, telling her that she's a woman now, her responsibilities in society, she's accompanied by her escort, Chambelanes. Not Chambelongos, <laughs> like I always say. <laughs> and if you want to, it's more traditional. Your damas, uh, girls like accompany the Chambelanes, that uh, they will join you for the later dance. And then they usually pair off, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Usually, but having damas is that tradition dying off, at least in Mexico. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I noticed that because you know, Martha and I were in Mexico last year and we went to your cousin's, Quinceanos. And we had a real blast. I drank a lot that night. There is apparently video of me dancing quite... Um, oh, we have it. Happily. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, how much did... Oh, God. I, I, yeah, I drank a lot that night. But It doesn't um, need to be documented. It's okay. 
Oh, fine. Sorry, yeah. Brian. I'm just proud of it. I'm, my constitution. Anyway. Well, we have all, we've all established that your super, superpower is that you are unable to be inebriated. Pretty much, yeah. Which <laughs> yeah. your family was extremely impressed with, by the way. They, they all were very much uh, pleased by that. Um, <laughs> but it was a really big party, and it was a lot of fun. And I didn't see any damas with your, with your cousin. No. no. The tradition's not enough. Yeah. But new traditions are coming to light you could say um like about the changing of the shoes your last doll yep interesting you see you say this and there's a lot of similar uh traditions that take place in some american sweet 16 parties too uh there's not i mean there's not as much of a religious context to it so there's not really a mass that's associated with them but there's definitely candle ceremonies. There's a, there's a shoe ceremony yeah. yep. in some cases. There is, of course, dancing. Particularly the one that I find interesting is um, for women, it's the girl dancing with her father, not unlike you would see at a wedding yep. uh, ceremony. Same exact thing with the yeah. quinceaneros. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of these different parallels. But I think it has almost a lesser meaning in uh, the non-Latin American culture. Yeah. Because it just, it more or less is this, the sign that she, he, he or she is growing up. Right. Not that they are officially an adult necessarily. Yeah. Uh, in the Quintanias, you have your family dance. You dance first with your father. Then with your grandparents are there, your uncles. And that usually it's more like a, a family type tradition. Yeah. And your parents are expected to give a speech thanking, like everybody else that came and uh, wish, uh, telling their wishes for the daughter, what kind of person they want them to be. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of these families in Latin America are very, very large families. And your poor cousin had to dance with countless numbers of people who were coming up there. There were so many of them. And they keep it really short. It's like... 15 seconds, all right, move on. We, we've got, like, four cousins left. Keep going. we got to keep going. It's not like a money dance, almost, at a at yeah. a wedding. You know, you, any guy who wants to give the bride and groom some dough can just get in line. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the wedding party. My other favorite difference was uh, we had Shakira. You're not going to find <laughs> that at a, at, a, at a Sweet 16, no. What? We had a Shakira impersonator at the... Uh, oh, at okay. the <laughs> I was like, Shakira's... Spanish, but okay, but, but okay, uh, I'll go with it. That's okay. awesome. That's really, really cool. It was, it was actually pretty funny. That's really, that's really, really great. So I've never thought about hiring an impressionist to do that. That's like, that's more like a bar mitzvah kind of thing going on. But we'll we'll get to that. In a we'll little get bit. to that so, too. Yeah, sure. But you know, when I look at the when I look at those, these traditions and I I look at the age of the person involved, though, what they really do focus on is fifteen years old means you are probably. Just coming out of, you know, just coming into puberty, you've probably just had your your first menstrual cycle, and now you are meant to be presented to community as a woman now, as a woman who can bear children. That's the biggest distinction between somebody who is a child and somebody who is not a child, at least if you're a woman. It is the ability to bear a child. And from that point forward, then there needs to be some sort of marriage ceremony. And it's and you mentioned this, and it's interesting that when this ceremony originally was kind of brought to uh, Mexico, when it was introduced by Europeans, it was a tradition that was already existing in Europe, and it really was a way of saying, hey, here's my daughter, she's old enough to have a child now, somebody come marry her. And we're rich, and we're wealthy, and we can throw this great big party, so you know you're, you're getting a real great lady, go ahead and, and let us marry her off. And that is really what the, the core of it is in its foundation, but it has now become something so much different. Because when I was at your cousin's quinceaños, what I saw was just a, 
a group of people coming together to celebrate this young lady who is now moving into becoming a woman, but celebrating so much more of what she's going to become and so much more of her life and doing it with all of her family around her. And I, I think that it's just speaks to who we are as a society and how times have changed and how the times are, are moving on, mm -hmm. uh, that it's all kind of coming together like that. Yeah, and I just want to add something that the uh, party style is more European, but the 15 years, los 15 años, are more of ancient times, Aztec, Mayans, and because at 15, girls were seen as adults. They were, having, they were started to be educated, some of the wealthy's family, as priestess. Hmm. Okay. They were starting to... You could say marry off, yeah. Too so. And yeah. fifteen was the the, the kind yes, of ritual the, ceremonial age that, that yeah. would happen. That's interesting. That's a nice little ancient holdover that kind of stuck around. Made yeah, it more exactly. unique. Very cool. Yeah, sweetheart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real treat. I wish you would stay the whole episode, but I know you won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, it's pretty late for us too, so you know, yes. I'm sure she wants to get to bed. But thank you, my dear. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah. Help. Please, if we ever talk about uh, Mexican culture again or anything Latin American, please, we'd love to have you back on. Oh, thank you, you guys. It's been great. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks, babe. It was great having Martha on. And you know, when she was talking about you know this rite of passage, the kind of woman they want to be, I immediately started thinking of uh, the, the Judeo-Christian implications of that. And dialing it back to, to Judaism for a second and talking about the whole idea of bar mitzvah and, and bat mitzvah. The bat mitzvah is actually a newer thing. Hmm. The, the idea of bar mitzvah uh, for men really kind of struck out in my, in my own mind. So, Eric, I'm curious, how much do you know about Jewish culture? Not a whole lot. I've actually never been to a bar or bat mitzvah before. Nor have um, I, actually, but that's okay. I have several Jewish friends, but I've never had an opportunity to really know anyone who was very um, orthodox, who was very, uh, maybe in line with the traditions a lot. I've never really been exposed to it from that from that angle. Yeah. I think probably television, of all things, and movies have, have been my quote-unquote education around uh, you know those those traditions and what have you. Well, but so I really know very little. You know that I am an, an Irish Catholic former step Jew. Of course. So, as all of our devoted uh, devoted listeners know this, of course. Yeah. So my stepmom was Jewish, and uh, now she's Catholic. But that's why I say I'm a former step Jew. But anyway, uh, I've always I, that was my first exposure to Jewish culture in any fashion, and I, I just started learning more about it as as I went along. Not necessarily from my family, but just from an interest mm -hmm. that came to mind. So, uh, first of all, um, there are pretty much, to give a quick little crash course in modern Judaism, I mean, we all kind of understand, I think, where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Land. It comes from, you know, the precursors, you know, the stories of Abraham and Moses yeah. and the laws that were given by Moses to to the people. Um, uh, those are the, the, the cores of the faith. As far as modern Judaism goes, there's pretty much three sects, right? You have, you have uh, Orthodox Judaism, who... Uh, or called the Hasidim, if you will. Those are the ones that we see uh, with, like, a Hasidic man would be the ones with the, the curled locks and the uh, specific ways of dressing because the Torah actually dictates that they, they dress that way. Yeah. Then you have conservative Jews who still keep all the kosher laws. They keep most of the traditions about uh, Shabbat, which is what they call the Sabbath. But the difference is in, a couple of differences are that in Orthodox Jewish services, 
women and men sit totally separately hmm. in temple. Not unlike in Islam. That's interesting. Exactly. Well, it's because the two religions aren't that far removed. Really not. <laughs> not that far removed at all. Whereas in conservative, men and women sit together. Okay. Um, and in some more liberal conservative Jewish communities, um, women can actually approach. Uh, now they won't be rabbis, but, but they will take part in some part in, of, in the ceremony that are going on. Yeah, exactly. What I find interesting is bar mitzvah is is consistent in, in all of them. But what I found really interesting is that the word bar mitzvah is actually in and of itself a multicultural word. Hmm. The word mitzvah has double meaning, uh, as is much of Hebrew. Mitzvah is uh, can mean both a blessing, but it also means commandment. Interesting. Okay. So the mitzvahs are the commandments, right? The word bar, uh, see, I used to the word bar because I'm used to hearing of uh, Jesus. Jesus is his name, and it was always called, his Hebrew name was Yahshua bar Yusuf, Jesus, son of Joseph, right? Ah. So bar means son. So bar mitzvah is son of the commandment. But bar, I thought, was Hebrew. It's not Hebrew at all. It's actually Aramaic. It comes from uh, the Babylonian exile. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So um, the word, but the same word, the root word in Hebrew is ben. So it's not that far removed at all. Ben mitzvah, bar mitzvah, they're, they're the same thing. Yeah. Well, Aramaic is, a many ways, a foundation language for much of the Semitic-speaking world. Exactly. Yeah. What is interesting, though, that I didn't realize until my research today was that uh, under Jewish law, before the age of 12 or 13, children were not obligated to follow the commandments hmm. at all. It was at that age that you were expected to function as an adult and be accountable for your actions. So by age 13, that's why men started to start to go to Hebrew school, learn the language of the Torah, be able to read the Torah. And that's why it's so important that you become a son of the commandment. The, the, the ritual is that you can transliterate the Hebrew not necessarily mean you know every every word of it, because again, every word can have three different meanings sure. uh, on different levels. But to be able to transliterate this, the the phonation of of the language, and in, and you sing it in a trope. You know, we see we hear the word trope a lot in our culture now as meaning um, a repetitive device in stories. But trope comes from the idea of it's a musical melody that gets repeated over and over again. Right. It's almost like a chant, right? So you have them singing tropes to you know Hebrew verses. In, in the Torah, and then they give a reflection on it. You know, it's like they're giving their own sermon hmm. on it, if you will. And that proves that they have studied to a point where they are, they can now function as an adult. They can understand the Torah as an adult. Gotcha. And of course, it's a big celebration afterwards, you know, dinner, gifts, a rock band, if you're more well to do, all this kind of things. I was you really You two comes and performs. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Some Irish Bono's Catholic. very big yeah. on bar mitzvahs. Of course, nothing like bar mitzvah like having a bunch of Irish Catholic boys come and uh, exactly and sing there. <laughs> but um, what what was interesting though is like I was doing some research, putting the feelers out to my my Jewish friends, asking what the the chair ritual is because there's a you situation put up on the shoulders. Yeah, right? but they do that during weddings too. Don't they, they? they do exactly. So I was like, so what's the meaning behind that? And I, without a batting an eyelash, my my good friend Francis said absolutely nothing. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> yeah, at some point in history, during either a wedding or a bar mitzvah, someone found a chair, put somebody on it, and just lifted them. And up. people and had, had clearly had too much wine to drink, so they yeah. just li start lifting them up and doing this whole kind of like bouncy house and kind of thing going on with it across the world. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I mean that was kind of a, a very quick tour into to bar mitzvahs, but bat mitzvah. So bat 
you would imagine if bar means son, bot, bot would mean, you know, means daughter. Means daughter, exactly. Yeah. And that is Hebrew. And bot mitzvahs don't find their, their roots until the 1800s, actually. Hmm. And it's not not until Reform Judaism starts to uh, arise in Germany. Interesting. That you get to see women have a take more more active part in it. And um, interestingly enough, we also start to see another tradition, which is, which is Jewish confirmations hmm. as well. You're like, what? A lot of people think of confirmation, they think of the Christian connotation of it. Right. And they and they assume the bar and bat mitzvahs are that equivalent, and they're not at all. There were some communities that felt that uh, ending the, the education of, of in Judaism at 13 was, was, was too soon. So these cultures started to, these communities started to extend that by a few more years. Sure. To understand it. And uh, in a way, you're, you are given kind of a quiz on your faith. You're asked to profess certain precepts about the faith and be able to understand it from a little bit deeper of a level. And then you celebrate that. And that's usually done at about age 16 or 18. But it's all changed, too. I've heard of people who are entering, who are late converts to Judaism, who have their bar mitzvah at age 40. It all depends on, on your growth. If you were raised in the Jewish faith, then it's expected that you'll do it about age 12 or 13. 12 is for, for girls, for boys... 13 is the age. And I think that's kind of funny because we talk about that, how women can mature faster than boys do. I think that's why they make the year uh, one year sooner for them than they do for, for guys. Hmm. That's very interesting. And, you know, I, I see so much of this also kind of paralleling in the Christian tr- tradition. And I just, I wish we had somebody who would be knowledgeable on something like that. Oh, wait, we do. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, Eric. Thank you so much for that genuine, <laughs> for that genuine opening. <laughs> no, I mean, in all honesty, our, our listeners know that, you know, I was baptized and that's about as far as I get in the Catholic world. Yeah. I, I don't have any other involvement besides that. Yeah, so, me, I'm a card-carrying member. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're good. You got a place up there. Um, <laughs> Hardly, but, but yeah, sure. Let's go with that. But, you know, I don't, I don't really, uh, I don't know a whole lot about confirmation and that is very much a um a rite of passage for absolutely a young rite of passage. catholic yeah um it became a rite of passage for both christians but it also i mean it became a cultural thing in europe of course as well um whenever i looked up rite of passage i i found confirmation come up in almost every search i did so well, let's start with confirmation right since i'm the resident catholic of the group let let, let me take it back to say that well, i'm not going to start with it that's for sure yeah Confirmation literally goes back to the founding of the church. I think it goes back further than that. I think it goes back to the first head nod. <laughs> that's so you, right, confirmation, right there. That's not that, a wrong. That, that is the moment. actual origin of confirmation. But please continue. Okay, not the actual <laughs> act of confirming that something is happening, but the the sacramental sense of confirmation. Oh yes, well, smart ass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the actual sacrament of confirmation to Catholics and Christians worldwide dates back to literally the birthday of the church to Pentecost mm. itself, what is oftenly, often conceived of as the birthday of the church, uh, approximately to what we conceive of as 50 days after Easter taking place, right? Because if, for those who don't know the allegory uh, in the Gospels, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and appeared to them like tongues of flame above their heads. And they were given the ability to do all these things, like speak, you know, to perform miracles and speak in tongues and all these great things. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, as they were, or the Holy Ghost, if you want to go by the old 
term of it. Holy Ghost to me, I think of Eddie Izzard and I think of his whole joke about, and what's the Holy Ghost think of this? Oh, useless statue. He's got a sheet over his head these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. This is not an episode of Scooby Doo. <laughs> so. Not to make light of that, of that, what some people take very seriously as a sacrament, but that's essentially what it is. And I can't say like when it was formalized. I'm just going to go ahead and jump out and say it was probably formalized at Nicaea. A lot of things were formalized at Nicaea, so I, that sounds like it's yeah. probably a safe bet. But all the sacraments in Christianity uh, are based, exist because they were performed by Jesus in some fashion, right? Mm, yeah. In this case, the Pentecostal act of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles was believed to take place as Jesus was ascending to heaven. So it's, you know, it was, it was still came from God directly. That's what they believe. And confirmation is still practiced, of course, in Catholicism, but also in East, the Eastern Orthodoxy for obvious reasons, because for a thousand years, they were the same church, uh, the Anglican church, and then Lutheran traditions mm-hmm. as well. They all have a very close similarity in that it's laying of hands. Um, you're anointed with oil, perfumed oil, generally speaking. Ideally, it even comes from the Holy Land. Uh, so it's like an olive oil that's been perfumed. And uh, they call it the sacred chrism. And uh, a bishop is the one who actually does it, unless there's been a papal dispensation. I'll get to that in a second. But the bishop usually takes the oil and just dips his thumb in it and does a cross on your forehead and says a couple words. And you have a sponsor who is a who is a confirmed Catholic go up there with you and usually has this, their hand on your shoulder. I'm sorry, I just have it. this image of Jerry Lewis in my head. <laughs> Coming up there to be, you know, because of the Jerry Lewis telethon. Oh, right. <laughs> Come and sponsor some great kids. And... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lady, lady. Yeah. Well, so let me talk about my confirmation experience, because mine was very, very unique, i got to say. In most Catholic parishes... You had a clown, didn't you? I didn't have a clown. No, no, no. Almost. Um, <laughs> almost? Okay, almost. go ahead. So, so here's what was weird. In most Catholic communities, it's, a, it's always been a bishop, because ever since the Council of Trent in uh, the Middle Ages, in about the 15, 1600s, they dictated it has to be a bishop mm. who uh, issues a feeling of confirmation. In Anglicanism, actually, it can be a priest or a bishop, but pretty much it's accepted that a bishop is the one who's supposed to issue the, the, the right of confirmation. And uh, in my circumstance, mine was aligned with the 20-year anniversary of the Diocese of San Jose. So I was one of 2,000 confirmandi. The bishop is not going to confirm 2,000 people. They'd be there all day. Holy crap. Yeah, so that's when a dispensation comes in handy. A dispensation is a formal ignoring of <laughs> of doctrine. Uh, a formal, the Pope saying, oh, okay, we'll give you a pass here. <laughs> because logistically, just it's not possible, right? right? So the bishop offers a dispensation to the priests. So it ends up being that the bishop does some people, but the, all the priests in the diocese were also there to perform the rite. Yeah, you need well. some help. That's a lot of people. Exactly. It's going to be there all day. Right. What I found really, what I found was really special was the oil bearer who was helping the priest was my grandmother. Oh, was, was my cool. late grandmother. So she was there to to see me right firsthand. And unfortunately, my my priest loved had a little fun with everybody because he when he confirms people, he doesn't do a little thumb. You know, he goes all the way. He dips his full hand in there and just slathers it across your forehead. <laughs> And he joked, he joked, my kids are getting confirmed. <laughs> I have this image of a priest just slapping across the face with an oil in hand. Yeah, I went from, I went from confirmandi to Caesar salad in about two seconds. <laughs> is what happened. Um, but it smelled nice, though. The, the, cool. Did you bring croutons? No, I didn't. And I got horrible, like, little acne breaking on my head afterwards, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ridiculous. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, see, I thought so. Um, 
so, I mean, the tradition does vary every, every now and again. Uh, there's a couple important things that I want to touch on on it too, which is that, I mean, if we if we if we really want to talk about the, the importance of why people get confirmed in the Catholic faith in the first place, yeah, it's to acknowledge your commitment to living the precepts of the Church, right? You are baptized Catholic usually when you are an infant, and they're under most cases. You don't make that decision. Your parents make the decision. They commit to raise you in the in the faith. Confirmation is something that's done, and it's always been traditionally done in the church when you reach the age of reason. So in some cases, it happens as early as like age seven or eight years old, and for many year, many centuries, was done at that early point in time when the kid could reason for themselves. Nowadays, it's much more in teenage years if it even happens at all. My mother was never confirmed Catholic. My father was. My brother and I both were, as we all know from. Listening to Sean joke around, Sean's barely Catholic at all. <laughs> at all. So you know, it, you choose to k- take with it what you what you want. I I chose to do it at age sixteen, uh, my sophomore year of high school, which was pretty pretty common uh, to be honest. Like that was there were a lot of kids around my age who were getting confirmed. Yeah, around that age, and you choose to basically you're you're saying that you're going to exist as a perfect Christian. That that's your goal. You will be, as my great late grandmother would say. Uh, you're going to be a soldier for Christ. You know, you're you're going to push the Catholic faith forward. And I will have to say that even with my own struggles that I have with with uh, certain church doctrines and everything, I will say that that experience, that that knowledge, that that's what I was committing to. Um, I don't regret making that decision either because it meant that there was a certain moral standard I was going to be living to the, for the rest of my life, and I'm glad for it. Um, there's also certain things that certain fringe benefits, I guess, it grants you too. Uh, because in order for you to be married within the Catholic Church, you have to be confirmed Catholic. At least one party, one of the two parties, has to be a confirmed Catholic. So I'm not knowing who I was going to be marrying, of course, uh, at any point in my life, I, I wanted to make sure that I got my bases covered in case I did want to have it. Hedge your bets. Exactly, in case I did want to have it blessed in the Catholic Church. So there you have it. I don't know if there's anything else, any more I can really say. We can get into the gifts of what the Holy Spirit is supposed to bring to you, but I don't think it's really relevant to what we're talking about. Not particularly, but thank you for your highly in-depth knowledge and sharing your experience, because that is really neat. You know, everyone has a different experience, a different take on those ceremonies. Everyone takes something different away from sure. it. And I think that's really the point of them, right? That's right. that's the important part, is what it leaves behind and what it what it instills in you. Right. And, and the celebration aspect of it is really important, because I remember before I became an adult and I had to buy my own you know, formal clothes, I had two suits. I had the suit that I, my parents bought me when I had my first communion, mm-hmm. and I had the suit my parents bought me when I got confirmed, which was for many years my adult suit until I, you know, needed to start buying my own clothes. So the idea of the formality of it and the idea of, of the celebration aspect of it, you know, we all went out and had a big dinner, big formal dinner after uh, after Mass that day, is something that I think rings true of even of the, of the quince años, yeah. right? It, maybe to a lesser degree. I mean, because I didn't. I mean, I didn't have my, no <laughs> hundred people nearby. We were just at like a Mexican restaurant after mass. But it was nevertheless that the spirit. I think of what was happening. Right. I was considered now somewhat more adult <laughs> adult than I was uh, going into that experience. Yeah, I never really had anything like that. I mean, I didn't really because of probably my disconnect from any kind of religious community. I never really had a, a need for anything like that. And it's actually far less common for, for men to have these rite of passage ceremonies these days than it is for women. I think religion is really something that helps bring that piece into it for both sexes. 
Um, but with when it comes to women, there's a lot more associated with them. And I think that has a lot to do just with their physiology and the changes that their bodies undergo. Sure. It's much more significant. Yeah. In a way, I think graduation has become more of that rite of passage, I think, for men. That's the closest thing we, we get to it nowadays. At least in our culture. Sure. Because there are many cultures around the world today that are still very much tribal at their heart and have a, a rite and ritual ceremony associated with those those tribal priorities, if you will. And I want to talk about some of those for a moment, because I still think they're they're very relevant, very interesting, if that's, uh, if that's cool with you. Sure. So one that I found to be particularly interesting, and again, while we're, we're talking about this age group of between 12 and 15, let's just kind of throw it in that, in that group right Fair there. Enough. Um, we have the, the Yanomami of the Amazon jungle. Mm-hmm. And this is that very traditional Amazon tribe that you you've seen in National Geographic. You've seen a lot of information on. Uh, they are still very much detached from the the more modern uh, cities, and they live out in the jungle in these very. They're, small... they're detached from form, any form of civilization, right? Depending on your definition of civilization, I mean, I mean civilization in the the classic Western sense of they have a formal writing system and right. they have they've, they've achieved a luxury yes. of, of of living. They still live a very very ancient, very traditional lifestyle. Exactly, and within this, they have a very still ancient perception of what the human body goes through in its changes, particularly menstruation. And it is something when you really think about it is actually very frightening to a child to be to go through that physical change. I'm speaking as a, as a as a man, never going through that change myself. But you know, you can just assume that that would be very alarming sure. uh, for a young lady. And in this tribe, uh, when the girls reach that that you know stage in their puberty, which is usually between ten and twelve, which I think is very interesting, because in much of the modern world today. 1415 is far more common, and that is due to the way that our bodies have changed because the amount of protein that we have, our whole bodies have changed because of it. Average height has increased because of it, uh, average bone mass has increased because of it, and later and later periods are happening as well. Whereas in you know these tribes who are, who are very different in their diets and mm-hmm. lifestyles, uh, starting much earlier at the ages of 10 sure. or 12 is actually far more common in these tribes. And that's well, I'm sure it's also the time. environment too that they're living in. I mean, th- that can also have a pretty big impact on a lot of different factors yeah. for sure. Sure. Uh, and when this happens, the the children are then taken off to a hut that is created uh, for them, and it's an isolation hut. It's meant just for them to live in for that week or so as they're they're going through their first period. And it sounds a little crude, but there is a large you know hole dug in the middle of this hut. And that is where they are meant to pass their blood from their menstruation. And they are taught that it is poisonous, that it is dangerous to be around, which is why they are in this isolation hut. It's meant so that they are not, quote unquote, infecting the rest of the village, that they're not exposing anyone to this danger, and that they are now having to be responsible for themselves in getting rid of this this poison, if you will. This is, of course, their perception of, of what it is. It's so strong that they are actually fed with a long stick. And this is how they are fed because they are discouraged to get anywhere near where anything could be happening like that. They don't want to touch the person and they don't want the person to touch their own mouth because they want them to be safe. Hmm. There's this really strong perception of it being very poisonous and deadly. And this is where they are meant to be. And while all this is going on, there's a whole change happening 
in their life that they're not even aware of. Because the second their mother finds out about it, she gathers her closest uh, elder female friends, and they are meant to go and clean out her entire wardrobe. Throw away anything that was hers that was associated with childhood. Uh, and they replace her clothing with a the clothing of a woman, a different type of dress that they would wear. And it is all done as this amazing transformation period. You know, here she is, she's removed from her community. She's put into isolation. She's given a task that to her and her perception is dangerous, a danger that she's never had to face before as a child. Now she has to grow up and take responsibility and face this perceived danger. And when she emerges from the hut, she's reintroduced to her society and she is a woman. All of those things that were hers that were that of a child are gone now. And now she is a woman. And so to us, we might look at it in the Western society and think it's almost kind of cruel. Here's this poor little kid going through this, you know, transformation, and we force her into isolation. She can only talk to the female members of her family. When she does, she has to whisper. She's not allowed to be in direct physical contact with anybody. She has to be fed with a long stick. You know, we all hear these things, and our first instinct is to think, oh my god, that's really horrible. But when you think about it, is it really? I mean, it's all about perception. It's all about the way that we perceive culture. Her family is taking care of her. They're right nearby. They're going to give her everything that she needs. Her whole community knows that she's there, and they're never going to let her be in danger. Yeah, they're not shunning her, necessarily. No, not at all. If anything, it's meant for safety in their perception. It's all supposed to be keeping people safe. So, of course, they're going to keep a close eye on her. They're watching her all the time to make sure she's okay. And her mother is going through this state where she's now making sure that when she comes out of that, she's accepted by her community and that she has a place in her community and she can now take on a new responsibility because she's shown her family that she's able to do that. She's able to handle something dangerous like this perception of it being poisonous. And so your first instinct is like, oh, they think it's poisonous? Why would they think that? That's so stupid. But it's meant to really teach this this young girl a sense it's, of it's responsibility. It's an allegory in, in a way. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a ritual. It's uh, an important ritual. Very important ritual. And when they come out of that, they are they are changed. And I think it's really just a very interesting kind of custom and tradition. One that I think, however, is not nearly as interesting as the next one that I have to offer you. Have you ever heard of the Wadabi? Yes, but that's a, only in name. Okay. The Wadabi are a fascinating tribe in Western Africa. And the Wadabi are, at their nature, a nomadic people. As of the 1980s, the last time that there was any kind of census done, there was something like 45,000 people who were in these tribes. It's probably about the same, if not maybe just a little bit larger, because so many modern Wadabi are now moving off and they're becoming, uh, they're, they're moving into the cities and they're getting jobs and they're, they're moving on to a different you know, lifestyle, different way of living. Those who are traditional Wadabi are still nomadic people, herdsmen, and women who are traveling uh, as, as nomads do. And they have this really amazing tradition where the men are out there to display themselves to the women. We talked about the quinceaneros. It's the other way around, right? Here's the woman who's being displayed for the men. She's all done up and gussied up, looks real pretty, lots of makeup. In fact, in Mexico, it's not uncommon for the first time a girl gets to even wear makeup is during her quinceaneros. Whereas here, it's the men who are gussied up. They wear makeup. 
they are meant to show their teeth and eyes to be as white as possible. So they try to actually make as much contrast as possible. So they darken their, their skin as best as they can. Well, they apply kind of a red henna to it. So it creates even, you know, this really unique contrast. Gotcha. And they wear kind of very light garments. And again, they create the sense of like trying to bring out the white in their, their teeth. You know, I can imagine that they would make millions of dollars uh, offering teeth whitening uh, <laughs> out to these tribes. Crest would just make a killing. Yeah. Crest would just take over all of West Africa. It'd be fascinating. But they wear these really just beautifully ornate and interesting getups, and they stand in a line and they dance in place. And they sway, and they sing, and they show off their teeth and eyes by making them as wide as possible. They're constantly smiling the whole time while they're doing it. And they're all doing it to attract a potential mate, to bring you know a woman close to them. And it's so interesting because a lot of their movements, a lot of what they're doing is all very effeminate. Um, and yet it's meant to attract a woman. I'm going to show you a picture of this line, and I recommend that people go online and have a look too. And this is what you would do for hours at a time. I mean, they will do this for a full week. Stand out here in a row, in a line, dance and smile and show off their eyes and flutter their eyelids and all that. And they'll do it um, hours and hours and hours at a time. Wow. And it's so interesting because we, in Western society anyhow, see it as the job of the woman to make herself presentable to the men. Whereas, you know, obviously that's a highly old way of thinking but it is still something that believe it or not it still kind of you know presents itself in culture in the way that you know women are perceived whereas in this culture it's the men who have to do their hair and put on lots of makeup and learn how to dance provocatively and show off their goods to the ladies i mean in a way it's actually uh it's a little bit more natural not to say that there's a a law of nature that says who attracts who (laughs) look at the peacock right yeah peacock not the peahen the peacock is the one who's got the big that's right feathers right it's to attract the female so that they can mate in nature that's extremely common exactly that's a good point that's a very good point i just i find it to be really fascinating and unfortunately this display which has been you know a tradition uh for for many many long years has become almost kind of um a tourist attraction these days because they they go to particular uh, trading posts to perform this ceremony every single year uh, in and around a, a special festival that's held. And that's when you find a lot of people come with the cameras now and sure. you know, film documentaries. But you know, that. that might be actually be a very important tactic because given how our world is so rapidly changing, it may be the only way that ritual can survive is to make it into an attraction for people to want to document yeah, the, the and photographs. That's actually, that is an interesting point that you bring up yeah um and ever since national geographic really started taking pictures of it and making it noticeable it's probably encouraged those tribes to keep on doing that uh which is exactly great and uh garawal i believe i'm probably saying it wrong but garawal is the is the um ceremony or excuse me the uh, festival that's being held in which this is ceremonies most often performed and the uh, yaaki dance is the uh the kind of reverse chorus girl uh, dance that they have. Interesting. You know, I think it's very, very interesting. So it's kind of, it is uh, just an inverted quince años, yeah. Kind of like that, yeah, a little bit, just a lot more face paint. Um, I also did just very briefly some research, not not a whole lot, but uh, thinking back to like the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah and confirmation, other ceremonies like that, that, you know, religious moving up 
in that religious order, but also becoming an adult in the same time. There is an interesting parallel that's also performed in Buddhism. Hmm. And I, again, I'm probably saying it wrong, uh, but I believe it's pronounced Senjibu. And Senjibu is a tradition that, at least traditionally said, dates back to the Buddha uh, and the Buddha's son. And the Buddha's son wanting to move on as an apprentice role and learn the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and this was, uh, if we believe that you know tradition to be true, we're talking about you know over 2,000 years old. This is a very, very old tradition. Mm-hmm. And it involves uh, a very young child or up to about 20. I mean, you have opportunity to do it, but it's mostly children who are very young uh, who are taken and paraded through their community, uh, adorned with kind of prince-like robes, uh, and they are brought to the monastery where they are indoctrinated essentially into that next level uh, within the, the Buddhist temple. And it's a time when the children themselves are actually really celebrated. In fact, the parents are meant to bow before the child and the the priests who are overseeing the monks who are overseeing it and show worship and and treat the the child with a certain level of respect they are meant to address them in particular uh titles and things of that nature and it's a, a community opportunity for everybody to come together and have a massive massive feast in fact it's almost forbidden for other people in the community to have cooking fires going. Hmm. They're meant to come and join in this in this great big feast that's being held in honor of this child uh, who's being treated in many ways like royalty. I mean, they are literally paraded through the town. They're held on the on the shoulders of others and they're placed in, in a throne-like chair and they're, you know, draped with this beautiful gold parasol that covers them. And like I said, they're dressed in this very uh, regal-like attire and they're brought to the temple and, and in a sense almost kind of worshipped, if you will. And then they do eventually, of course, return home, but with the understanding now that they're another level up uh, within the within the temple, and they're expected to come back and become a part of that. This is so important, it's particularly with the people of Burma and Burmese uh, Buddhism, that if you did not have any male children, it is not uncommon for families who are at least you know have the means by which to do this to reach out to orphaned children and pay their way for the ceremony. Uh, or to reach out to children in the community who whose families are not wealthy and actually give them that money, because by doing this, it's considered to be a very, very good act within the Buddhist faith. Okay. And I think it's so interesting because you, you hear about the party and the dance and making that person so important, kind of dressing them up and then moving them to the next echelon within their religious society. Uh, it parallels exactly what's going on in the West. Yeah, I mean, it is very reminiscent of what we're talking about with confirmation even though there's less of a of a formal religious education, I mean, there's a religious education there, but this feels almost like you're be, you're being uh, entered in with the intention of becoming a monk uh, at some point or another. And many people, I'm sure, did sure uh, for for many years. Well, let's wrap up with a rite of passage that I think many men have to go through. I think it's ironic you use the word wrap up, but okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're talking about the, way to uh, telegraph, Eric. Way to telegraph. <laughs> Um, uh, circumcision. Yeah, let's just say it. Let's just throw <laughs> just it out there. Put it out there. Circumcision is a, a fascinating one because it is practiced in numerous cultures, but not every culture That's across true. the world. Yep. It is practiced um, throughout parts of, of Africa, 
West Africa was was one of them, not, yes. but not all parts of Africa. This is a very ancient tradition, going back to the ancient Egyptians. I yeah. got to throw it in there. Yeah, well, I was, thank you. I'm glad, I'm, if you weren't going to say it, I was going to, because it did come up in my research. Um, the Aboriginals uh, of of Australia yep. practiced it. Mesoamericans practiced it. Um, it's pretty much practiced throughout all of the the Arabian Peninsula, <laughs> um, which goes back to the fourth millennium BCE. So we're talking about a uh, a 6,000-year-old tradition at this point, about as old as Judaism itself. And it's actually arguably the oldest practiced planned surgical procedure in the world. Some people speculate, uh, namely Peter Charles Remendino, in his 1891 book, The History of Circumcision, speculates that it goes back uh, as far as 15,000 years, so before any recorded history. And I, 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 don't, I don't know that data, so I don't want to speculate yeah. off of it but i mean certainly mankind has had the technological sophistication and biological sophistication you know knowledge to to actually sure. perform circumcisions going back at least that that right. far so why is circumcision a rite of passage eric well that's an interesting question and i think i'll open it with a joke <laughs> uh what did the baby say to the moil what don't get snippy with me Thank you. Um, uh, usually, I'm used to the baby going. Ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, really, circumcision in the ancient world was associated with cleanliness. Absolutely, and yeah. cleanliness is associated with holiness. Really, uh, and if you were going to be a member within a temple, if you were going to be within the presence of something that was religiously significant, you wanted to be ritually pure and clean. The ancient Egyptians in particular practiced ritual bathing uh, in their temples. They had multiple sites set up for the priests to bathe as they moved into different sections of the temple that was required of them. Mm -hmm. And circumcision was considered to be that rite of passage. Here are these children. Children are childish. They get in the dirt. They play around. They have fun. They're not meant for the temple and service within the temple. Adults are meant for that. And you must be clean. And it is easier to keep your genitals clean if you are circumcised. If we go back thousands of years before we started wearing clothing, when everything was just hanging out, it was the opposite. It was easier to keep things clean because you had yeah. an extra layer of protection. But as we started wearing clothing, what happens is we start bunching everything together and it gets hot and sweaty and things of like that. I know this is really gross and I apologize, but you know it's just the truth of it all. And to keep things now cleaner, it made sense to perform circumcisions. Sure. And I'm not going to be able to mention all the medical conditions verbatim, but there are certain things that you need to do to treat it. Like there are certain times where, all right, guys, we've all been in sex ed class, so let's, let's just let's just get it out there, okay? There are certain points where the foreskin literally won't contract, yeah. and it's stuck, and it can cause major health problems. And, and extreme discomfort and pain. Right. So you have to cut it off, yeah. you know? There's also, I found this really interesting, according to the World Health Organization, there was a study done that shows that the transmission of HIV AIDS in heterosexual sexual relations is reduced by as much as 40% if a male is circumcised. I've heard some estimates as high as 60. Yeah. Yeah. Something even higher than that. Yeah. And in those parts of Africa where AIDS is still in epidemic proportions, it is now becoming extremely practiced for that reason. Well, taking a second, I know you have the Egyptian stuff pulled up right, right there. I want to take a second and say that it's practiced pretty much universally in both Judaism and in Islam, even though Islam has no scriptural basis for it, it both goes back to the allegory um, of of Abraham, because Abraham 
is the one character next to Moses who is in both faiths, right? Right. So, um, it, which really means it goes back to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, which we all know uh, from our earlier podcasts, was where Abraham was from. He and his ancestors were already practicing it at that point. So if it was already being practiced, you know, 6,000 years ago, maybe even 7,000 years ago, we can say already that it was a pretty common cultural practice going into that. Yeah, and it still is practiced today. It's still very uh, commonly uh, practiced around the world. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding circumcision these days. There's a lot of people who speak out against it, uh, in particular it being performed on babies, because it's not uncommon for the baby to not have any kind of anesthetic performed when you are removing the foreskin. Yeah. Ironically, do you know what part of the world does not favor circumcision that much? I don't know. Northern Europe, our oh. Norwegian friends. Well, it's their cold culture, up there. Yeah. They want an extra layer of protection. Right. But I find it very interesting that in that culture where we now talked about there's a common practice where it also leads to a high amount of, of sexually transmitted diseases mm. becoming rampant, is also a culture that doesn't necessarily condemn, but doesn't necessarily encourage circumcision either. Yeah. I find that an interesting parallel. It is interesting. If anything, a modern result of traditions like Rus. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Continuing on with where you're going now. But speaking back to the ancient world, you think it was bad for for babies now. Uh, When you were being circumcised in ancient Egypt, you were usually 10 or 11 years old when it was happening. Oh, good God. Yeah. Uh, And they would oftentimes get you drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Rightfully so. (laughs) They would give you some alcohol to kind of dull the pain. And the earliest uh, tomb depictions of a circumcision, the earliest depiction of a circumcision in history uh, actually dates from the sixth dynasty. Uh, and this is at about uh, 23, 20, let's just call it 2340 BCE. Uh, and it comes from a tomb depiction in Saqqara. And there are two, oh, I've seen this picture. It's actually on the cover of the world health organization. <laughs> There's two really uncomfortable looking people who are being like, one of them is being reached from behind and he's being like, his hands are being like pushed together <laughs> while the guy is actually performing the circumcision. So, this, so one guy, one guy is man enough just to have it, have one guy do it. The other guy has to have another man hold his hands. <laughs> exactly. The other guy is just like putting his hand on top of the other guy's head. He's like, it looks like he's praying. <laughs> the guy, he probably the, is uh, on praying. The left. <laughs> wow. Now, but, what I found interesting yeah. too, is in these treatments, there was a little bit of pain medication that you would get, whether it's alcohol or ointment or whatever. Yeah. Going into the ceremony, going into the the procedure, but then afterwards you wouldn't. There was nothing about it because I guess it only really hurt for the actual cutting, and then everything else would just kind of. I guess it wouldn't be enough where you'd need further. I don't know treatment. because I've heard stories of people who've had uh, circumcisions as adults and have a very painful and more difficult recovery time. Maybe as an adolescent, though, as a child, yeah. uh, and around ten, eleven, twelve. Well, it's, it's, it's easier. really tough in our culture too because they say in this day and age you have to abstain from any other how should I put it, recreational use of that area right. for four to six weeks. And adults have a real hard time with yeah. that. Yeah, whether it is personally in, uh, instigated or with another person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of the most gentle way of saying it. <laughs> uh, you must abstain from that activity for four to six weeks, which is an eternity for some men. <laughs> for some men, they don't have a choice. It just yeah. happens. <laughs> right. Um, a strong breeze. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's a debate and a topic that we could go at further length. I really don't want to, though. No, we don't really need to go into that. We that's, don't need to. No. But it is a rite of passage, and it is important to mention. And it is what it is. Yeah. No matter what your feelings are on it, it is a, it is a part of history. Yeah, uh, and there are history. certain... And a lot of medical organizations in this world today have now pretty much come to the agreement that the medical benefits tend to outweigh the risks. Yeah. 
of but circumcision. If you are of the mindset where you just don't want to perform it or have it performed on your child, that is absolutely your right to do so. Uh, and there are many people in the world who are not circumcised who live perfectly, totally normal lives. Sure. It yeah. is not by any means something where yeah. if you don't have it done, it's going to ruin your life. It's well, nothing like there that. There is a more modern movement now where they're considering male circumcision a form of genital mutilation. Um, and I mean, technically speaking, it is, but it's for health reasons. Yeah. Um, but when you hear the word genital mutilation, you also think, I think of female genital mutilation, unfortunately. Yeah. Which is what female circumcision is oftentimes. Uh, There's no health benefits to it. It's purely, absolutely not. It's purely f- uh, for social, I hate to say it, but it's for putting a woman in what they believe is, is her place in that society. Yeah, it's for the domination of women is what yeah. it really is. For those who don't know what we're talking about, I mean, I'll try to spread the details here because we try to keep this podcast clean. But essentially, the, the clitoris is removed yeah. uh, and covered up. And it, the mindset is by removing any form, any ability to obtain pleasure from sexual relations, uh, they believe the woman's not going to be a, a one unfaithful. to be an, yeah. to unfaithful, exactly. And that's just so barbaric. It's I mean, ter- I, terribly I don't, barbaric. I don't, you know, it's hard for me to say things like that because I don't ever want to be judgmental of other cultures and beliefs. But at the same time, like you said, there is no benefit to this in no way, shape, or form. It is painful, and it is detracting a human being of something that is pleasurable, something that gives them something so much more, you know, and, it, it, and that's just, it's just so wrong, in my opinion, you know, and again, it's my opinion, but I just, I think it's a universal one. I mean, the world recognizes this. And, it's one of the more, cons- it's, it's generally now, I mean, there's some cultures that may still practice it, but it is becoming more and more considered, uh, consensus-wise, a, con- a condemned act. It is, yeah, yeah. I believe the UN actually said it was it was on their list of violations of human rights, and it yeah. is. It's just it's barbaric, yeah. And you know, for some women, for many women, uh, the clitoris is the only way they can achieve an orgasm. You know, by depriving a, a person of that at such an early age before they would ever even become sexually active, you've deprived that woman of of that basic human function and ability that is so very pleasurable. And that is just, uh, in my opinion, very, very, very wrong. And I think it's universally shared. Sure, sure. Yeah. I don't want to end on a, on a, a sad note. So what I have is a, a request for our listeners. We know that we have listeners from around the world. And I would love to hear a different rite of passage, maybe. Something that we haven't mentioned. Something that maybe is very specific to your culture. To your religious beliefs. To your family. Because there's many families who have type of rites of passage ceremonies that they perform. And I would love to hear that. I would love to get some some very specific listener feedback. Let us know what you have done in your life that you consider to be that rite of passage. And we will mention it on an upcoming episode. And we'll, Absolutely. Uh, we'll shout yeah. you out. Yeah. And here's how you do that, folks. So first of all, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, hi. Hello. Welcome. Good to see you finally. Um, <laughs> you've got like 40 episodes to catch up on, but thanks for being here. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can go to our website, nerdonomy.com, where we have a way for you to email us through the listener feedback button. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy. You also can get me on my personal Twitter at Brian Moriarty. And I'm at the Brickbond. There you go. Simple as that. Uh, yeah, and go to our Facebook page. We love Facebook. You can check out the Nerd Cave. You can uh, drop us a line. You can see all the cool stuff that we post on there. And uh, yes, indeed, please do listen, communicate, and share. Share Nerdonomy, the gift of Nerdonomy to the world. Bring the culture of nerd to other people. Yes. <laughs> yes. Before it dies out. <laughs> like it's actually in danger. It's not, it's not in danger. Well, Brian, we've had a 
This has been awkwardly interesting. Yeah, it was like, what a roller coaster of an episode. We, we we came back from vacation. We had some great listener feedback. My wife actually came on the podcast for a short time, uh, and and the world now knows that yes, I am marryable. And the uh, and we 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 went on this fascinating journey. We proved just how uncivilized we really are because we ended up talking about penis and vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are a couple of guys doing this podcast. Um, <laughs> it was not all that unexpected. <laughs> Uh, listeners, thank you all so very much, and we will see you back here next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, at nerdonomy.com. Bye!